I'm Earl Fontanelle. This is The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at www.schwepp.net. And today we are speaking with Amy Hale, an anthropologist and folklorist, writer of many an interesting text, and an expert on the fascinating artist and esotericist Ithel Calhoun. Amy, thank you very much for joining us. Earl, thank you very much for having me. This is great. Um, you have a book coming out very soon with Stranger Tractor Press. By the time some of our listeners listen to this, it will already be out, called Ithel Calhoun, Genius of the Fern-Loved Gully. Yes. Let's talk about this, this genius of the fern-loved gully, because she's a fascinating, fascinating artist and person, more generally. So I was wondering, first of all, if we could just cover her basic biography, because it's always good to kind of anchor ourselves in chronology and places and stuff like that. I absolutely agree. So Ethel Calhoun was born in India, in northern India, in 1906. Her family on both sides was very rooted in Indian colonialism. So uh, her father and her grandfather um, and aunts and uncles were all very embedded in that project. And she uh, returned to Britain. Well, can't say she returned because she hadn't been there previously. She moved to Britain just before her first birthday. And she um, lived in Cheltenham and Isle of Wight. And she went to Cheltenham Ladies School when uh, she was younger. That was where she got her first education. It's kind of interesting. Her parents went back and forth to India quite a bit. She always found her, felt that she was somewhat displaced because she felt like she should have remained in India and been part of that culture. So I think part of, of her life story was really trying to find herself and find a sense of roots and identity. It was very, really key to a lot of her work. Her par parents weren't around very much and she had kind of an interesting and unusual education. So she was, yes, educated at Cheltenham Ladies School and later uh, Cheltenham School of Art and Technology. She went to the Slade where she was uh, more formally trained in art along with other amazing women esotericists like Florence Farr. And then she was really active with the British Surrealists, probably from about 1938 to about 40. She discovers Surrealism in 36 and is affiliated from 1938 to 1940, where she has like a really great burst of activity. And then in 1940, she some say she got booted out. I tend to think that she walked from British Surrealism uh, for a variety of reasons, but one, because she was interested in uh, maintaining her uh, occult studies and other occult associations. And then she, uh, she gets married in 1943, is married from 1943 to 1947 to another Surrealist, Tony Del Renzio. That ends in 1947. And after that, she starts living in Cornwall part-time. And she goes back and forth between Cornwall and London uh, but eventually bases herself in Cornwall by uh, 1959. And then she stays there until her death in 1988. And I'm sure we'll talk about more of the details of her life throughout this, this conversation. Yeah. The search for roots that you mentioned is, good, is very significant, isn't it? Because she sort of found or constructed, depending on how you want to look at it, her roots in Cornwall and Cornishness and Celticness. And stuff yes. like that. But before we before we get on to that, which is a really big and really interesting topic, I'd love to talk about a couple kind of relevant movements in her time. So one being surrealism, and we should kind of anatomize what was going on with that. And the other being organized esotericism, all these interesting occult orders and stuff like this that she's involved in. So first with surrealism, what is it about... English surrealism that makes it troublesome to be a practicing occultist. What was well, the problem? What kind of politics are involved in this? So, you know, it's, it's actually, I think, less the problem with the occult than it is what uh, Edward Meeson's was trying to accomplish with British surrealism at the time. Of course, surrealism from its very beginnings with Andre Breton has a history of um, flirtation and intersections with the occult and with the esoteric, whether it's tarot cards as a game of chance and trying to inspire 
things from the subconscious, from the wider mythic, to alchemical symbolism, which, as many of us know, kind of weird and dreamlike, which also kind of played into a lot of the dream imagery that, that many surrealists were using. So we see these things emerging in surrealism throughout its history. Uh, so when, you know, the idea that Ethel Calhoun was kicked out of British surrealism because of her interest in the occult, I think that's actually a very simplistic framing because what was happening, uh, British surrealism, it, it was late to the party and it didn't always stick particularly well. You know, it's not something that really set very well with the wider British artistic sensibilities and ideas about what is art. So it was it was also happening during wartime and any artistic movement is going to have uh, difficulty during wartime. Mm. So, you know, it, it came about in the late 1930s. And then um, Edward Meesons, who was a promoter, a surrealist promoter, he promoted the work of Rene Magritte. He had an amazing surrealist network. He came into Britain and really tried to get this movement together and give it an institutional base as it was essentially crumbling. It had lost many of its major institutions, the London Gallery and its its kind of flagship publications. You know, this was this was 1940. And so he was really trying to stick it together. So what he did was he called a meeting and he had a number of different things that he really said that if you're gonna be a part of this club, then here are the things you need to do. And one of them was to say, for instance, completely support the aims of the proletariat. Another was that you could not publish anything outside of the institutions of surrealism or surrealist you know, wow. bodies, which, you know, I mean, he's trying to institution build. He, you know, he, was, he was trying to do this. So you can see it's like, all right, I need everybody on board, all your attention right here. And you cannot belong to any other uh, groups or societies. And Ethel wasn't the only one who said, yeah, I don't think so. There, there are a number of people who actually walked at the same time. So even though she has written just only a very bit in 1976 about that meeting and about the fact that Meesons may have had some trouble with the occult, I don't feel personally that that was the overriding concern. I think it was trying to get everybody's time and attention too directed toward a cause. Yeah. And Ethel Calhoun, it's very important to note, her surrealism was in support of her occultism. She was an occultist and a, and a mystic and an esotericist long before she found surrealism. And she found surrealism as a way to support those other activities. So the idea that, that she wasn't going to, in some way, explore those and expand on those just would not have worked for her. So she's not gonna sign the exclusive contract, basically. Exactly. Fair That's enough. it. She wasn't going to sign the exclusive contract. It's interesting to me that this guy, Edward Messens, Meesens, Moosens, this Belgian surrealist, is saying we all have to support the aims of the proletariat. In other words, yeah. he's, a, he's a lefty. While at the same time, you have very prominent surrealists like Salvador Dali, who are fascists. Yeah. You know, or maybe he's an ex-surrealist by the time he becomes a fascist. I don't know the history. Um so a lot of extreme politics, but they go in lots of different directions coming out of surrealism. Even though I'm, I am not an expert on surrealism, uh, I think that it, at its core, was designed to be populist and designed to critique art, particularly the art markets and art movements in France, mm. which is obviously where it started in the 1920s. It was designed to provide a particular type of critique of elitism and of the idea that not everybody could be an artist and that you had to have something very special to engage with that milieu. And surrealism was meant to, to get everybody to engage with the arts. And so it was trying to break down certain classical precepts. And I think that there were a number of those that Ethel herself was was on board with and would have been on board with. But as you note, and maybe even a bit of kind of what we're seeing today, populism can take many forms. Right. It can induce a number of, of different uh, political sensibilities. I personally don't believe that 
while Eithel had some libertarian streaks to her, I don't believe that she was a populist, even though she, I think she struggled with that notion herself. I don't think she was a populist. And she certainly would not have, even if she wasn't against the proletariat, I don't think that that's where she would have found her, her primary allegiances to lie. And I don't think she would have associated with them deeply. You know, she was into the idea of initiation, the initiatory current, and the idea of an elite. And I think that that played out for her in a number of different ways. Hmm. Well, that maybe brings us in a nice segue to the esoteric activities of Eithel Kauhun. And, and most of that really went on in her own mind or her own soul. So we can't map it historically necessarily. But I wonder if I could quote to you something from your article on Eithel Kauhun. Um entitled The Magic Life of Eithel Calhoun, which we link to in the notes to this episode. She was, quote, an initiate of a wide variety of different orders representing hermetic and pagan traditions, including the Ordo Templi Orientis, goodness gracious, co-masonry, the British Circle of the Universal Bond, the Golden Section Society, and in later years, the Fellowship of Isis, end of quote. And this is interesting because this is just a short list, actually, of the many orders that she was member of. So I wonder if you can talk about and maybe try to give us a map of historically the map of her different relationships with these initiatory organizations and what they were about. Sure, absolutely. Um, I just want to preface this by saying that I, I really feel that uh, in looking at, at her life that we get this fascinating cross-section of not only ideas from what was happening in the British esoteric milieu from the middle of the 20th century, but we also get a really close look at how one person develops an esoteric identity and works with esoteric ideas in terms of her own lived experience and daily life. We don't really get a lot of that. And so we've got a great opportunity here to look at how some of these ideas were playing out not just in you know in, in people's books about grand ideas, but how somebody was actually trying to work with them as part of a sustained practice. And she did have a very sustained practice. Um, she started out when she was much younger, being involved and interested in alchemy. Uh, we see uh, even in her her younger her notes and her juvenilia, we see writings about uh, you know, correspondences and the planets. Uh, she gets into alchemy very early on in her life while she's at the Slade. And then over time, so while, while she's in the Slade, she meets her, this is, this is kind of foundational to what happens in her entire life really. While she's at the Slade, she meets Quest Society. And there she meets a distant cousin who she had apparently heard of when she was a, a child, Edward Garston, who happened to be the cancellarius of the Alpha and Omega Lodge of the Golden Dawn at the time. And he took her under his wing and gave her all sorts of uh, access to his Grand Hermetic Library. He was very into alchemy. And even though she had been exploring that earlier, this was a really great way for her to uh, kind of increase her knowledge and access to texts. Garston wrote two texts of his own devoted to alchemy. I think he's actually a really underexplored figure. He was really fascinating. And through Garston, she contacts the Golden Dawn for the first time. And he really wanted her to become a member. He thought because of the interest that the Golden Dawn has in color and color magic, that it would be a really great fit for her. And so she applied and she, uh, this is probably the early thirties. She applied and was denied. Mm. She was denied membership into the Golden Dawn. Do we know why? And so her story, and given what I know about her occult history, I'm inclined to believe it that she feels that perhaps she was not humble enough in her own esoteric knowledge. You know, she was a young woman, she was very knowledgeable, very smart, and she feels that perhaps she came on a bit too strong in the initial interview process. This happens more than once because if she didn't 
you know, she didn't agree with something, she was going to tell you what it was about. And she feels that that's probably what happened to her. But she felt importantly that during that contact, that she was touched by the hands of the Golden Dawn secret chiefs. Hmm. And she then sought out, you know, and again, keeping this in the context of what was happening, not just in her life, but in wider Britain at the time, you know, after she gets denied, you know, she's a young woman, she graduates with her diploma from the slave, decides, okay, well, I'm going to go off for a few years. And so she did. She went off traveling and uh, came back to Britain a few years later. But by this time, again, she finds surrealism. The war is starting. Esoteric orders themselves are starting to feel the pinch of this, are starting to feel the pinch of World War II. And the Golden Dawn pretty much shut its doors at that stage. And she did not have access to a lodge when she came back and wanted one. You know, she got involved with surrealism. She got married. She really wasn't ready to engage again with esoteric orders until the late 1940s, early 1950s, until she's gotten rid of her marriage and has gotten herself a little bit more settled down. So she starts trying to find orders that she believes have been touched by the secret chiefs. So she tries a whole bunch of things that she feels have uh, not just the kernel of esoteric wisdom, but also with shared personnel and probably techniques with the Golden Dawn. So she gets involved with the Unfortunate Society for Inner Light. She gets involved with Kenneth Grant's OTO uh, in about 1952, 1953. And these two orders are kind of interesting to balance because with them, you get not only the hermetic tradition and the initiatory tradition, which was clearly extremely important to her, but you also get the other current of work which goes throughout her life which is her interest in British nativist and Celtic traditions, which you see very strongly in Dion Fortune's work. So these I see are the two threads that really run through her own personal spiritual journey. Yet even when she goes to the Celtic stuff, she goes to stuff that is very initiatory, very perennialist, very much carrying this idea of a wisdom current. Yeah. And that is what we find that is in all of the orders she joins, it's not just the fact that she was part of this esoteric milieu. What was important to her was the transmission of an initiatic wisdom current. Right. So, in other words, it's not about just some knowledge you could get from a book in theory. It's about getting the magical zap through yep. an initiation ceremony and then becoming part yes. of this spiritual current. Yes. So she knew Kenneth Grant. That's very interesting. She did. And was she did. doing work with him. Now, what else can we say about her membership of these of these different groups? It seems like she sort of picked up some and kind of drifted away from them over time. Maybe she just didn't find what she wanted in some of them, or was it more a case of um, she didn't have a problem with having multiple initiations going at the same time and getting the good stuff from whatever she could find in each of them? I think that's, that's actually the case. Um, I think that she was seeing a lot of these. She was... She was a perennialist, and she was a traditionalist with a capital T. Really? She did, she, very, did she read Guénon and those guys? Sorry to interrupt. She did. Okay. She did. And I think that that's really important to uh, to note, because she was also a... Um, W.B. Yeats was a huge influence. He was also a traditionalist. But she wasn't just a, hey, we look back on her now, and we see that she was a traditionalist. She knew what the movement was philosophically. She referred to it by name. She referred to uh, Guénon and, and was interested in what he was trying to do. And she was affiliated with other movements and people who also identified as traditionalist. So this is really interesting. We see somebody who had a very kind of formative period of that movement's development. We see her being aware of it and uh, applying that within her own strategies of esoteric groups that she was going to come into contact with and work with. So given that that was her orientation, that she was perennialist, that she was interested in a wisdom current, that uh, she was a traditionalist, the groups that she was joining for her, I believe, would have all reinforced those ideas. But maybe some of them were looking at it from a slightly different angle. So for instance, she became a Martinist. And I don't know the degree to which any of that stuck with her, but she certainly did go through the uh, the curriculum and it was 
for her, it was probably, you know, she knew people who were involved in it. Uh, there were a number of people who would have led her into Martinism in the early 1960s. And even if she wasn't into the relationship with Christianity in the same way that others might have been, she was really interested in the idea of uh, humans returning to their primeval state before the fall, which is something that, uh, and, and the androgynous being that, that you find in, in Martinism and in other esoteric groups. So she would have been exploring that from say, a mystical Christian angle, whereas with Druidry, she would have been, with the form of Druidry she was interested in, ex been exploring that wisdom current from a Celtic angle. So I think these were all very tied in, and she probably she probably saw them as all part of this one current. Now, later in her life, of course, she finds a Golden Dawn type order and starts working with them very heavily. So I think that, that this is all part of one big thing for her. A number of people, of course, took multiple initiations, and um, now I think some of that was spiritual, and some of that was probably also social. Okay. Thank you very much. This helps us get a, a picture of some of the different influences that are coming in here. And it's a good lesson to us as scholars because, of course, on the printed page, a lot of these things would be considered contradictory, right? So you can't be a follower of René Guénon and in Kenneth Grant's OTO. It's just impossible because Guénon thinks Crowley is like an evil anti-initiatory sort of force in the world. But in a, the actual spiritual practice of a modern occultist, of course you can do both these things, right? Now, she's interested in all this stuff, and she's an artist. She makes artworks. And you have um, taken the interpretive approach that her we should very much approach her artwork as um, part of her spiritual practice. So she's an, she's an esotericist or an occultist first. And... Mm -hmm second or you know sort of after that she becomes an artist was is that a accurate paraphrase of your approach well i think she was always an artist i think that what would be useful is to look at a particular story and kind of chunk it off her association and her affiliation with surrealism although she said you know she she was a surrealist and did surrealist practice uh, you know her entire life after, after she started using automatic methods, that was really the way that she went. And she was very attached to that personal identity, but she was an artist. I mean, her, her earliest, we have very early pieces from her and she was an esotericist and even doing esoteric art well before she found surrealism. In the late 1920s, she, as part of her school curriculum at Cheltenham, she did a play called The Bird of Hermes which I think was probably inspired by one of the pieces from the Lambspring, Book of Lambspring. And it was about integration. So we're talking about this very young woman who creates as part of this curriculum, this dance performance piece based on integration and integration with the higher self based on all these alchemical themes. I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable really that she was doing this. Mm. So when she finds surrealism, especially knowing that the surrealists were into a lot of this stuff too, it just drives her magical practice. But there's there's a lot of her esoteric art that is is not surrealist and not automatic. So, you know, it kind of cuts a number of different ways. While we're on the subject of this, um, I wonder if you could lay out what automatic methods are, and we could also maybe talk a little bit about possible parallels that can be made between the automatic methods and, and uh, earlier practices like transmediumship and that we see in spiritualism and stuff like this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, automatic methods develop out of transmediumship, although a lot of the surrealists and even Ethel herself claim that she was not a fan of transmediumship in terms of basically contacting the dead uh, and, and doing that kind of work. That was really not what interested her. But automatic methods in surrealism, and as they were applied in surrealism, first they started out in writing. Uh, a lot of the early surrealists thought that you couldn't use automatic methods uh, in painting or in other visual arts. And what they were trying to do with it was to 
basically free your mind or to enter into a trance state so that you could develop your communication with your subconscious and with all of the images that maybe are coming from, if you take a union approach, and a lot of them did, the collective unconscious was uh, you could use automatic methods to gain access to that part of your brain, which would also be accessing that wider collective unconscious. So we get, again, the focus on symbols um, and, and, and dream imagery from that. In the late 1930s, though, there are some surrealists who became interested in seeing automatic methods in surrealism, not just as applied to the visual arts, but also using ideas from recent studies of the fourth dimension, which were actually kind of this interesting blend of math and spiritual technology to gain access, not just to your own subconscious, but to a wider world of spirits and energies. Uh, the work of Hinton, who was so influential. Yeah. And uh, so- He blew everyone's of, mind, basically. He did blow everyone's mind. So Hinton and then uh, Gertrude, uh, you know, kind of using some of these very same ideas and putting them into a very different spiritual context. So a lot of the surrealists and other artists at, in the 1930s were very impacted by, by Gertrude and his idea of the artist as seer. So a school of, of surrealists, um, Gordon Onslow Ford, Roberto Mata, they kind of took uh, automatism. And I feel, again, not an art historian, but uh, they were taking automatism and using it to, they had a slightly different worldview around it. So they were using automatism to reach a whole wider set of planes and beings. And I think that that is where Eithel kind of took it and ran with it in her own surrealist practice. So in 1949, she writes a piece called The Mantic Stain, where she looks very in-depth at a number of automatic methods that she would use. One was decalcomania, where you take paint and you put it on a surface or canvas and you smush down another surface on top of it and lift it up and then see what images emerge. And you would take some sort of finer brush or other instrument to, to draw those together into recognizable or not recognizable images. Now she, being a magician, attributed this to the element of earth. So when she was doing these, she was in, in a certain way, she was using it kind of as a divinatory practice or also perhaps in a magical uh, invocatory sense of trying to work with specific elements depending on what kind of automatic method she was using or maybe earth elementals or maybe this was for her a way of manifesting certain ideas from other planes so that other people could experience them. Fumage was another technique where you make images on paper from burning it slightly over a flame. And of course she attributed that to, to the element of fire. So she had a number of these that she uh, wrote about really beautifully and magically in the Mantic Stain from 1949. It was actually a pretty early piece on how to use automatism in a magical way. And she, keep, she continues doing this throughout her life. And we see you know, these beautiful automatic pieces, the deck out of intelligence, and uh, her tarot deck, which were, I think, some of the pinnacle of her automatic pieces in you know, about the last decade of her life. Still going hard later on. Still going hard. So automatic method, there's a little bit of a background and then what I thought Calhoun did with it, which is to integrate it with a much richer kind of esoteric lineage, I guess you might say, intellectual lineage. I wonder if you could just run through briefly, this is a tall order, but her life as an artist. So what kind of work did she do? What kind of exhibitions did she do? How did her art find its way into the public? What kind of success did she meet as an artist? I mean, I'm quite interested in how she supported herself in all this stuff. I wouldn't say that she necessarily lived super large, but she had, uh, she, you know, she came from a, from a colonial background. She had enough resources to be unconventional. Right. And I think that for a woman, that is no small feat, especially in the time period in which she lived. So she had a small family trust. Uh, she did 
sell her work. I wouldn't say again that she was super rich, but she did have properties in Cornwall and London and did have the finances to travel uh, somewhat frequently Hmm. to maintain both places and to make architectural changes to them. So I think that although there's been a tendency to see Ethel Calhoun as this this kind of witch figure living in in a shack, she was actually exceptionally well-connected. She continued to exhibit throughout her life in places she exhibited in Germany and in Belgium. And uh, well, let me get to that in just a second. Yeah. Because I, I really wanted to set the material stage for the kinds of things that, that she did. And so I think that it's important to realize that while she was not a woman of many means, she was enough of a woman of means, again, to be unconventional and to live the way that she wanted to live without having to take work outside the home. She only ever had a conventional job very briefly a couple of times. So when she leaves the slave, she's doing kind of large pieces that are, uh, you know, kind of what you would expect an art student to be doing. They're based on classical themes. They're based on biblical themes. They tended to be very large. She had an interesting fascination with, I think it was, uh, well, with public art and with murals. And she tried for a mural scholarship a couple of times after she left the slave and she wasn't successful with it. But occasionally we do see her engaging with uh, large scale public projects. I think she wanted to do those more than she actually did. In the mid 1930s, before she discovers surrealism, she's doing these beautiful detailed botanical pieces of floral art and of other kind of images like aloe vera and and close-ups of these these beautiful hothouse flowers which might be seen in more exotic climates and then she hits surrealism and they start to get sexy right so we see her moving into kind of the double image where it's a natural form that is just so clearly like straight up vulva pubic hair like just so in your face Ethel Colhoun's art was very in your face. So she starts kind of transitioning as she's in in the 1930s from these botanical studies to very naughty botanical studies. And then she starts working with, um, as she becomes more embedded in the cultures of surrealism early on in her own process, she uh, is very inspired by the work of Dali. And so we see these, again, these dreamlike images Uh, She's engaging with, just on the cusp of the Second World War, ideas of death, resurrection, but using a Frazerian framework. So it's about vegetation gods and and about the Fisher King. So we start seeing, but again, wrapped in this very sexual imagery. So we see a lot of castration. Uh, We see castrated figures. We see male decay, but female lushness is Mm. what we see in her work before she hits her automatic period. And this is a really interesting and and rich time period because the other thing that we start seeing, now these are her public pieces. We see her showing at the Mayer Gallery in 1939. She has kind of her big surrealist debut. And then we also, in private, she does a whole series of sex magic pieces, which were incredibly explicit. She was clearly exploring polarity, but not necessarily... So she was exploring gendered polarity, but with the idea that they did not necessarily have to take male and female forms. Cool. Is she? Yeah. Is this in the period when she's married? Her brief marriage. This is. So they are. They're undated. I believe they happen right before she gets married. Now I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but I'm going to throw it out there because this is a theory that, well, I think it's relevant. In 1933. Ethel Colhoun falls in love with a woman. She falls madly in love with a woman and uh, don't know the degree to which it was physically consummated, but she asked her to come and live with her and uh, was turned down. This is in London still. Come live with me in London. Come live with me in London. Although the the woman was Greek. She met her during her her Mediterranean travels in, in the early 30s. She asked for her to to come and live with her, and she was refused. So after this, we see all of this very sexy stuff going on in her artwork. And then in the 
40, 41 period, she does some pieces dealing with alchemical conjunction based on the sex magic theory, absolutely for display. And then a whole bunch of stuff that was so explicit. I mean, we're talking lots of penetration of lots of orifices here that would never have been, she could never have displayed this. And the fact that she was a woman artist doing this is just unreal. But then she gets married. So I have kind of wondered about the impact that her marriage might have had on her sexuality and on her queer sexuality. She had other, I'm sure that she would never have labeled herself as queer, although she did realize that she was interested for a time in, in lesbian sexuality. But queer as a positive self-identifier didn't exist until the 90s, really. So Exactly, she, it was, exactly. If anything, it was just an insult. You wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have claimed it for your own. Exactly, you wouldn't have. But I, I think even the degree to which she would have uh, identified as lesbian or, or even bisexual or sapphic, um, the women she knew around her in that milieu would have been termed mannish. And she certainly did know them. She had many, quote, mannish lesbian friends who were out lesbians. So, you know, the degree to which any of this would have resonated with her and her own identity is not clear, but it certainly would have, I think, it's reasonable to look at this body of work in relationship to those different portions of her life story. And hmm. the sex magic stuff seems to stop, and a lot of the alchemical stuff seems to stop as intensely by the, the mid-1940s. But this is an amazing period of time. This, like, looking at the period of 1936 to about 1942, which was really the um, the flowering, eh, pun intended, of her of her erotic artwork. It's kind of a remarkable time period. And then after that, we stop seeing quite the focus. We see her moving in the late 1940s to automatism, which still, I think, retains some very, very erotic features. Her, her automatism, although she is also doing uh, some landscape pieces uh, when she gets to Cornwall that some of them for her book, uh, The Living Stones, also take on some very, very erotic features. But we, st we start seeing her move into automatism in the late 30s, early 40s, and that becomes her focus, and it's less re representational yeah. going forward. So she becomes more abstract over time, doesn't she? And uh, Yes. Uh, um a lot of her later work is just pure, pure abstract. I mean, I would, if I just glanced at it, not being an art historian, I would say, oh, abstract expressionism of some flavor. Yes. Splashes but, of know, color on other splashes of color. Right, right. But here's the thing. Her work was so deeply encoded that she did not see it as, as abstract. Right. Because she was, you know, her tarot deck is a really great example of this. It's completely color-coded. You know, it's, it's completely elemental and catalytic, And most of her work, once you hit on what her color scheme was and what she was trying to do, once you get the code, you can unlock what she was doing. So at no point was she really, I think in her own mind, would she have seen this as, as abstraction. She was working with other planes to tell the viewer a story. Hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the move to Cornwall? Sure. So she's going down to Cornwall a little bit, she kind of gets a flavor for the place, and then she moves there at some point. Yes, she, in in late 1940s, she rented kind of long-term lease, as one does over there. She took out a, a long-term lease on a cottage called Val Cave in Lamorna in West Cornwall. And Lamorna was another artist community there, Along with the St. Ives School and the Newland School, there was a, a Lamorna community, artist colony, which maybe it was, I think, a little bit more stylistically eclectic than either of those two other ones, which had definite styles. So, so she's living embedded in this artist community, and she basically goes back and forth between Val Cave in, in Lamorna and London quite a bit until the late 1950s. And I think it's important to realize that she has that other home base where there's still a lot of her magical community and a lot of her access is, is in London. And then she moves in 1959 to Paul, the village of Paul, which is between Newland and, and Mausel, kind of near, near that area on coast, near Penzance. 
and it's a very tiny hamlet. But it's interesting because Paul is kind of one of the centers of, of Cornish activism, of Cornish cultural activism. It's iconic. It's where the some of the last Cornish speakers and the mythological last Cornish speaker, Dolly Pentreath, was buried in Paul Churchyard. So uh, she, she lives there from 1959 uh, until her death in 1988. And Cornwall was, you know, she claimed, as you had mentioned earlier in the interview, she claimed this Celtic identity for herself. Now, she did have Scottish and Irish ancestry in her background. Of course, she was not raised in a Celtic environment. She traveled to Ireland very early on. But Cornwall was the place that suited her. Uh, it was the place that she... You know, like I did, you know, fell in love with. She fell in love with it. And it was integral to her idea of herself as being part of this Celtic spiritual current. So in terms of references here, we want to look at the sort of history of the idea of the Druids, Celtic revival, 19th century, Yeats. Does she know Yeats or does she just know his work? So she met Yeats on a couple of occasions. Don't know a whole bunch about those meetings. They were in the late 1930s, but she is a huge fan of his writing. And in a lot of ways, I kind of wonder if she maybe saw herself as carrying on some of Yeats's projects. You know, in, he was obviously a key figure in the Celtic revival, yet when, when it kind of shook out, and the Irish Republic was formed, his team, he was Anglo-Irish, and his team didn't win all that much. And so I think that he, his, his vision of kind of uniting Ireland through this kind of Celtic spiritualism um, with a you know, hermetic-flavored Celtic spiritualism, it, it wasn't successful. Mm. But I think that was something, that was a synthesis that appealed to Ethel Colquhoun greatly. And so we see that again, weaving in and out of her life. But we also see this kind of interesting intersection as Celtic ethno-nationalism kind of starts having a more public face in, and starts kind of coalescing in the 1950s, kind of across the board. Uh, we see this intersection with developing Celtic spirituality. You know, Again, we see a lot of this coming out of neo-Druidry, but you've got you know, kind of the ethnic Druids, I call them, and other people call them, and then the non, the spiritual Druids. Uh, so, you know, there's always this tension between what does Celtic spirituality look like and what is Celtic ethnicity? How is that comprised? Mm. And those don't always sit together very well. And it's very clear that while Ithel had very, very explicit feelings about the sovereignty uh, and political directions of Celtic peoples, that her project was a spiritual one. Absolutely, 100%. Well, I mean, it's it's hard to see. So Yeats, to look back to the 1930s, you know, he had, had flirted with the, the blue shirts, this sort of paramilitary, arguably fascist Irish nationalist movement, um, he which did. he later sort of turned his back on. But um, as he probably would have any mass movement, really, because he was such such a spiritual elitist. And so he was an occultist. He's, he's not this kind of like for the masses kind of guy at the end of the day. But... <laughs> Um, so there, I mean, there was a, there were a lot of ideas about Celtic meets national already in the, in the thirties, but that despite the problematic third ingredient of Catholicism or Christianity, that kind of makes sense in an Irish context, right? It really, it's hard to see how it makes sense in an English or in a, a great British context when you have this little peninsula of Celticness in the, in the, the Southwest corner of Cornwall, but it's part of England and England is not Celtic really. Well, so um, obviously I'm going to, to disagree with you there. Bring it. But, um, oh, I don't think, uh, unless you want to do an entire show on the history of, of, of Cornish identity, um, because boy, could I, I uh, talk a lot about that. There is, but I will, I will leave you with this, that when you look at the history of Cornwall, the way that, that I say it is that Cornwall is administered, administered as an English county, there is a very long history of cultural and political difference in Cornwall that is not English. Uh, the case for Cornish, a distinct Cornish ethnicity, I think has been very well made. 
But what we see happening in all of the Celtic areas in the late 19th century, again, is what, if we want some sort of political sovereignty, how do we make the case for being seen like, what is the, I hate to reduce it to these terms, but what is the best marketing campaign that we can make? Right. And right now in a lot of areas, in Scotland, I think particularly, we see um, ethnopluralism done very, very well in a political context. We did not have that kind of sophistication in the late 19th century. And so, well, what are we going to do in Ireland? Are we Catholic? Are we Protestant? In Wales, we see some of these other things. And in Cornwall, are we Anglican? Are we Methodist? Yeah, that all makes sense. And and to clarify what I was trying to say, specifically about nationhood, right? right. In an Irish context, there is the possibility of having a Celtic nation in the, in right. the realm of ideas and politics. Yes. In Cornwall, there is no yes. such possibility in the 20th century. It's not like Cornwall has ever... Cornwall might conceivably be granted some kind of local autonomous parliament or something like that, right? As we've seen devolution in the in the remains of the British Empire over the 20th century, but it's never going to become an independent nation state. In Well, I think I think that the degree to which people would want that in Cornwall, there there are a variety of cases that are currently made for devolution. But I, I will also say this, that without going into too much detail, the, the history, the political history of Cornwall actually looks very different from even the rest of the Southwest. So, you know, it is a duchy. It has had a particular relationship with the crown. It has had, at one point, it had 44 MPs. It had its own parliamentary system uh, until the 19th century. There, and there are still echoes of that. So people who look at the political case for Cornish devolution and the form that it will take will look back at some of these absolutely unique, interesting relationships that, that Cornwall has had with sovereignty. Right. And yeah. so I, I would urge anybody who wants to explore that because it is a thing. Now, is Cornwall going to be, you know, an individual? It, 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 are we going to have a, a distinct Cornish state anytime soon? Probably not. And I'm not even sure that that's what many of the people who I know would want. But I would urge people, if they're interested in these matters, to uh, to have a look because the history of Cornwall is super interesting. Um, there is a reason, obviously, why Cornish nationalism started congealing in the late 19th century along with these others. I think making the case has looked a little bit different because it's been integrated with English politics since, you know, the 800s. Right. Um, so big shout out but, to the Isle of Man here and Cornwall for their unique and interesting political history. Every day, every day. <laughs> um, so it's safe to say, though, getting back to to Our Lady, that she made a spiritual home in Cornwall very strongly, right? She she got yes. super into the landscape of Cornwall, super into the lore of Cornwall. I imagine her spending a lot of time just walking through country lanes surrounded by Cornish hedges and just being like in her element, loving it and absorbing Absolutely. material for her for her artwork. Absolutely. Yeah, she was an animist. I mean, even though she was involved in all these esoteric orders, she identified first and foremost as an animist. Interesting. And the landscape and the magical the magical characteristics of the landscape and sacred sites and antiquities were the most important things to her and preserving those and being in touch with those because for her these sacred sites this was also the legacy of the spiritual technologies of the past right and so if you were near those sites and you were in touch with them then you could harness their powers this is very interesting because um she seems to have been ahead of the curve on uh what you might call quite a significant current of English esotericism of the latter half of the 20th century, as exemplified by writers like John Michel. So the um, the spiritualization of the idea of ley lines, the um, interpretation of ancient monuments, Neolithic monuments and such as, as ancient astronomical temples, um, so on and so forth. And she seems to have had some of that vibe in her thinking and, and really been a kind of sacred sites hound. I know she went to Brittany a couple times. I'm sure she, part of that was to visit men um, here sites and stuff like that and just check out the sort of celtic landscape of, of Brittany, which is very spectacular 
Um, but she was into that stuff quite a bit earlier than its sort of popularization in the 60s. Oh, absolutely. And so one of the things that I discuss in the book is the way that she was using some of the fourth dimensional ideas that we were talking about earlier and seeing you know, as early as, I don't know, 38, 39, 40, envisioning the sacred landscapes of Cornwall as being tesseracts. Whoa. Yeah, I know, right? So because she, there is evidence from her sketches that this is how she was viewing them through this, through this dimensional portal lens. She was ahead of the curve. I think she was probably very influenced by a number of, of things happening. She saw Dion Fortune speak in 1934. Uh, there's no evidence that they, they really knew each other, which is kind of weird, but uh, she saw her speak. And in the early 30s, Dion Fortune was conceiving of sacred landscapes as, again, these sort of portals as sites which were built on spots of particular sensitivity and particular alignment. So she was kind of articulating some of these things in the early 30s, but we see this development about what is the nature of that power? Where does it come from? And she starts, you know, when she's drawing these sites as powerful places, she did two pieces in in uh, about 1940, 41, 42. Well, they're based on the men and told, it's called The Sunset Birth and Dance of the Nine Opals, which is uh, based on the Merry Maidens, both in West Cornwall. And they are amazingly complex paintings, which explore some of her ideas about these underground currents of energy and how they work at the site and how the stones are connected and how people interact with them. They're absolutely remarkable pieces. And there's a huge body of theory that she's drawing on that I think is is probably in terms of, of popular understandings about of Earth mysteries. I think she's about 25 to 30 years ahead of her time. Hmm. Well, that brings us maybe to her Nachleben, you know, sort of her her influence, the, the influence she had on other people and, and this sort of thing. And before we get onto that, do you think people like John Michel and, and others, the sort of popularizers, of Earth Mysteries were Ethel Calhoun fans in some way, or were sort of picking up on what she was doing, or was she more kind of under the radar? That's a really excellent question. She did do a lot of publishing. Now she didn't, she, I think her, her biggest Earth Mysteries pieces are really the pieces that she did for Peter Owen, Crying of the Wind, Ireland, and Livingstone's Cornwall. Uh, she did a few others which touched, a few other publications over the years which touched on these, but would have been found in a variety of zines and other esoteric journals. I mean, it's not like you know, she was all over the internet. So it's possible that people knew about her, but I feel that her influence has been sadly very limited because she was utterly brilliant on these pieces. But they were, I think that, that they would have been quite scattershot and people would have had to make a conscious effort to find where she was publishing. And because she was publishing in venues as wide as the Hermetic Journal and Water and Wood and Prediction Magazine, you know, there were a whole bunch of places where you would have to go, have gone to find her. So I think that her influence is really only just starting. Right. So Let's talk about that influence now. What's happening now in, in the world of Calhoun studies, of which you are part? So in terms of, of artistic influence, I uh, have been uh, really interested in and have actually had some really fantastic exchanges with a contemporary feminist artist, Linder Sterling, who is known as Linder. Are you familiar with Linder at all? Mm -mm. I, I think she came into certain levels of popular consciousness through doing album covers for the Buzzcocks and the Smiths. Okay. She is a, uh, she's primarily known as a collage artist and she does these incredible mashups of porn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she cuts out these pornographic images and then overlays them with flowers or cake or appliances. And they are 
funny and disturbing and challenging and incredible at the same time. So she's she's uh, most known for that kind of work. And in uh, 2014, she did a residency at Tate's and Ives where she encountered Colquhoun and Colquhoun's work. And she fell in love with the idea of the mantic stain. And so she has now, like for the first time in 40 years, has started using some of Eithel's mantic techniques in her own work. So she actually started using a paintbrush again instead of just doing cutouts. But she does these, she's got a whole mantic stain uh, series that she's done using some of the things that, like enamel that you might see in some of, of Eithel's later work on these women's bodies. The other thing that she did was because she does performance and ballet work, she commissioned a ballet based on the ideas of the mantic stain and created this, all I can say is it's a, it's a glorious rug. It's an amazing rug. It's a rug. I love this rug. It's a rug. I love this rug so much. It just, they, it has to be seen to be believed. And it is uh, based on one of Eiffel's pieces from the 1940s called Diagram of Love, Marriage of Eyes. And so it's this gorgeous rug that's used in the ballet as a dancer. And uh, I think that Linda has been particularly inspired by Eiffel's work, by her methods, especially on the, the idea of how do, do you have, how do you use this, this kind of mantic and trance space to generate and to inspire your work. So I've really enjoyed having conversations with Linda about her process and how it's changed after encountering Eiffel because Eiffel's been a huge influence on her recent work. Cool. And bringing it back to Cornwall, which is kind of cool. They're coming to Cornwall and going, oh my God, what, what have I found here? Good Lord. Mm-hmm. We have that work. So something very, very much within the realm of what you might call the art world. Yes. Um, so that's got to be yes. very important. Then in the realm of esoteric publishing, um, Fulgur Press has come out with a couple works of Calhoun in their usual kind of deluxe coffee table format for which you have written forwards or introductions. And that, I think, inevitably puts her squarely on the radar of the occult cognoscenti, let's say, who own coffee mm-hmm. tables. <laughs> Um, which is a certain wedge of our of our listenership on the, the Schwepp. And I know there have been a few notices of her in the sort of annals of academic study of art. Um, there's a, an article for an Oxford journal about art to discussing her very much in the context of just surrealist woman artist. So do you foresee a kind of an explosion of interest or a revival a big, a big uh, exhibition at the Tate Modern, a big retrospective or something like that in the coming years? I do, in fact. Uh, there are a couple of, of interesting things that are, are going on. Um, before I get into that, I do want to give a shout out, though, to Steve Patterson and the people in Cornwall who are inspired by her work and who see her kind of as this witchy ancestor. Uh, I kind of think sometimes she's turning into the Frida, Frida Kahlo of Cornwall. And that does not uh, bother me one bit. I think she's I, I, there, she's getting this reverence among practitioners now, which is really exciting. So not only is she you know, impacting what we would consider the high art world, her spirit is, is continuing to make waves. And I think that that is going to be part of this renaissance as well, as we learn more about her and her life. But yes, uh, I do think that we're going to see some major exhibitions in the coming years. The Tate has just in 2019, acquired the legacy of her studio, which she left to the National Trust when she died in 1988. They've acquired 5,000 pieces. So in my own work uh, and in the very few other people who have worked with Eiffel's material, it's been really hard to gain access to these. These have not been cataloged. They've been kept in in uh, private collections by the National Trust. And so getting to see them has been very, very difficult. And this is going to open up a whole new world of access and understanding. And people are really going to understand now, hopefully, how unbelievably incredible she was and what a theorist and practitioner this woman was. We haven't really had the opportunity to do that up until now because it's been very hard. And I really want to 
actually thank Robert Ansel and his tenacity in just even getting these works out and they, these very, you know, the deck out of intelligence and the tarot, they're, they're kind of, they're these beautiful set pieces. You wouldn't think that they'd be that difficult to get access to, but he really worked hard to make those, those beautiful uh, publications happen. And I do think that those are windows into our understanding of how her mind worked as an occultist. And I often wonder on a daily basis, what did her world look like? as somebody who had ingrained those correspondences to such a degree. You know, whereas I might be looking across from me and seeing a blue table, she probably saw it as an altar of Jupiter as much as anything else, you know? So that's her, her visual sensibility. We're now going to get a picture of, of what that must have looked like. And I'm very excited about, about what's to come. On that note, Amy Hale, Thank you very much for speaking with us about the great Ithel Calhoun and stay esoteric. Yeah. <laughs>